This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Uh, when you get to 200 meters beyond that, it's a deep sea, and people think, well, that's not of concern to me. They say, well, actually, it is because most of your planet is that. <laughs> So it it should be of a concern. In terms of responsibility to try and understand how the planet functions and what lives in it. If you imagine, and it's all driven by people's weird relationship with depth. And I think it's because we're air-breathing mammals. We just hate the idea of depth. We call it deepest, darkest fears for a reason. We hate depth and we hate the dark. And unfortunately, the deep sea is is all of that. All of both. (laughs) So the problem there is if you were to say, for example, from now on, Let's go back to when we knew nothing about the rainforests. I said, right, here's the entire Amazon rainforest. We're going to study everything in the first 200 meters. And the rest of it, forget it. It's just deep forest. It's just monsters of the trees. We've got no interest in that whatsoever, because let's face it, none of us are going to really ever go beyond 200 meters into this forest. So we'll just write off the rest of the Amazon basin. Oh, that's a great analogy. But that's exactly what you do for most of the planet. You know, and the same with Antarctica. You wouldn't just go at 200 meters into Antarctica and go, right, see the, the rest of this entire continent, which, by the yeah. way, is minuscule relative to the deep sea. Yeah. Forget it. It's not worth it. It's not worth a hassle. It's too difficult. It's expensive. And let's be honest, it doesn't give us anything. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, An active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. Did you know that most of our planet is deep sea? It's true. The deep sea floor of just the North Atlantic Ocean alone is larger than the surface of the moon. My guest today is the world's foremost expert on the deep sea. I mean the very deep sea, as in over eight kilometers or five miles deep. Dr. Alan Jameson has been on 70 expeditions aboard some 26 research vessels and has done more than a dozen submersible dives deeper than 10 kilometers or six miles. His countless discoveries in marine biology have garnered multiple Guinness World Records, and he has personally named several dozen previously unknown deep sea features. Not bad for a small town kid from Scotland who disliked academics graduated from art school, and found himself working as a hauler on a moving van crew, wouldn't you say? You're in for a real treat, as Alan tells us how serendipity shaped his path through life, how he pioneered the design and construction of the deep-sea robots that have taught us so much about this fascinating realm, and the varied adventures and discoveries he's had along the way. Alan and his family moved recently to Perth, 
That's the warm Perth in Western Australia, not the chilly Perth in Eastern Scotland, by the way. And he joins me now from their home. Alan Jameson, I have heard about you for, gosh, coming up on two years since I had the chance to join the pressure drop and sail to the Western Pacific and wanted to deep dive into your deep dive work. But it's a delight to have you on the Zoom with me. Hello. Hello. It's a yeah. pleasure to have me. For our listeners, we're, we're doing the really mega time zone thing here because Alan's, Alan's in Perth, Australia, where it's 9 a.m. in the morning and proper tea time. And I'm in Columbus, Ohio, where it's 8 p.m. and really getting well onto adult beverage time. But we'll just we'll just make that work, right? No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a Scotsman, as I think probably everyone can tell already from your first couple of words. Where is your accent from? Uh, it's a bit of a mix between Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I actually spent most of my time in Scotland living in Aberdeen. So it's probably a weird hybrid of many different dialects within a small country. <laughs> Interesting. Who was Alan Jameson when he was a very young boy? What what was he interested in and what kinds of things was he up to? Good student, bad student, all that kind of stuff? I was a terrible student. I mean, I think a lot of people look back at things like high school and, and really resent it and hate it and still have all sorts of issues. I loved it. Did you? I just didn't, I didn't do very much. I wasn't particularly academic and we had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then I went to university in Aberdeen and... I didn't study biology at all or anything marine. I had no aspirations whatsoever to ever be a scientist or do anything at sea. I did a, an undergraduate degree in industrial design. Why? I don't think I was a particularly good student at that either. I, I think <laughs> it was just, you know, I, I got a, a pretty good degree at the end of it. I think the last year I, I kind of ramped up a bit and realized that I should maybe get my act together. <laughs> and then uh, everything just sort of spiraled out of control and lots of accidents and happy circumstances and so on. And, and it led to this. So I still want to back up a bit. What kind of interests did you have as a kid? I mean, you ended up in mechan- in industrial design. Were you you know, handy with cars or handy with stuff? Or why university at all? And why that line of study? I was trying to think what I, what I was really into when I was little. When I was little, I was certainly... Girls, yes, music. Girls and music, yeah. I used to play drums in a band. Yeah, that did was you? my thing. That's, that's what I wanted to do when I was a teenager. I used to play in, in bars and stuff like that. That's what I really, really was into as a teenager. But of course, you know, you can't go to your parents and say, actually, I don't want to go to university. What I want to do is be a drummer in a rock band. Because <laughs> that's, the, you know, they're not going to go, okay, then. <laughs> yeah, that was my big plan. Before that, I mean, I remember at one point before I was really into airplanes, I used to sit and draw, make up my own sort of airplane designs and stuff like that. And I can still see a little bit of that because I still design my own lander systems. I still design gear for 11,000 yeah. meters. And there is a little bit of an element of just sort of sitting down and, and drawing stuff like you did when you were. 10 years old and you know I was always really really big into Star Wars I think as everyone else was growing up in the, in the 80s and it was just Star Wars was your life and and I can still see elements of that and what we do now you know it's it's oh yeah you know, crafts and vehicles and going out in yeah. big ships and stuff like that you know it's, it is a weird there, there are sort of strange elements of, of childhood and what we do it's weird how the bits come together I, I designed my brother and I grew up in Southern California we had a you know the typical backyard swimming pool for Southern California and it was the, I'm a lot older than you, it was the um, Lloyd Bridges, Jacques Cousteau era. And we wanted a clubhouse, but we wanted ours to be on the bottom of our swimming pool. So nice. at like age nine, we sat down and drew very crude drawings. But, you know, we understood the part about 
you know, if you could take a cup and push it down under the pool and anchor it to the bottom, there'd be air in it and you could go hang out there. We got that part and we wanted windows, of course. The rest was mm-hmm. all the rest was all pretty sketchy. But So what did your parents think of that, of the two of you getting into a confined air pocket and going down <laughs> the bottom of the pool? My father was an aerospace engineer, so he, since we had the first order of physics roughly right, I think he was not too upset at all. And I was enough of an odd, adventurous tomboy as a young girl that I think my mother probably had already given up on me and just resigned herself to her fates. So he didn't say no. I mean, he sort of talked through the design with us, and as happens with nine-year-olds, then you just quietly let it die an easy death, and you go on to the next path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. yeah. So. I'm still curious whether you had something that shifted you towards industrial design. I mean, 17, most people don't even know the label industrial design. What does that even mean, right? Yeah, so industrial design is is some, somewhere between design, which is making things look pretty and sellable and all the rest of it, and engineering, which, which is making something that absolutely works, but is not necessarily something which is practical. Right. So the whole, the whole concept of product design or industrial design is to try and marry the two together where you're trying to think cleverly. You're trying to trying to get an idea there where uh, I'm trying to give an example. An example of that is actually my, my project, which was a lander, believe it or not, was why is subsea equipment so expensive? Why can't you mass manufacture this stuff? Why is it why are they always one-off really expensive yeah. builds? Why can't we just run stuff off on a production line? You know, I guess Henry Ford is possibly the first industrial designer where he looked at the car and went, that's just far too expensive. No one's ever going to buy this. Let's be clever. we got to be able to make 10,000 of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got, then you've got to be smart. You've got to look at, you know, having, you know, as many components exactly the same and having many materials the same. And, and, not, and you start to, you're trying to break it down into something which is attractive that people look at and go, wow, I want that. That's beautiful. And also that's affordable. <laughs> because you know, beautiful. Everyone wants an Aston Martin, but you know, Aston Martins don't run off production lines in the same way as, as as other things do. So, to me, I didn't I didn't really enjoy the academic part of university. I enjoyed the social life and stuff. I thought that was great. I, I was actually based in an art school, so I used to hang out. I, my flatmates were really? oil painters, and yeah, some of them quite famous now. So some of them got paintings hanging in all sorts of places. But so I used to hang around with sculptors and artists and stuff, and I, I didn't have much to do with. The people in my class, I don't know why, I just sort of leant towards the more arty side of folk. And the reason why I did that at university is because when I was at high school, the only thing I thought I was ever good at was technical drawing. I just wanted to do technical drawing. Uh, and I still do. I've even been doing it last week. <laughs> so I've got something being made right now, which is really cool. Did your high school have a course in technical drawing? They did. And my father was a draftsman. He used to design stabilizers, diesel gears for ships and cranes. And he ended up technical director of Rolls-Royce Marine. So oh, I wow. used to, when I was drawing pictures of airplanes and mapping out Star Wars battles and stuff like that, he used to, because back in the day when he, he was in a, an office full of lots of draftsmen who were drawing this stuff on huge sheets of paper. And he used to come home with these massive sheets of paper. When you're a kid, you're like, ooh, you're just coloring in technical drawings or you turn it over and you've got this, a piece of paper you don't get down the toy store, right? You don't, yeah. you don't get, you know, like zero sheets of paper. 10 feet by 10 feet. Yeah, yeah, it was really exciting when he came back. He opens his briefcase and he's like, yep, got some. You know, these were going to go in the bin and then you spend the night just with your felt tip pens drawing these ridiculous big things. And so, yeah, so I guess that morphed into, I just wanted to do something that was technical drawing. Did your dad's background influence your interest towards the ocean? I'm being with Rolls-Royce Marine and then ending up at the University of Aberdeen, which is right near the Scottish offshore oil patch? I actually don't, I don't think so. I think no. what, 
I mean, I know, I know, I know the, the exact sparks that led to to this, and that was I was doing the technical drawing stuff at, at uni, and I was hanging around with a lot of artists and stuff like that, and their perspective on life is much more interesting and diverse than the normal guys from the engineering background. They were into reading the sports pages of the paper at lunchtime and talking about football and and, and whatever and arguing over which band was better or was it Blur or Oasis, and you know, and and, and with, the, with the arty people, we were all listening to the most bizarre stuff and having more bizarre conversations and a bit more philosophical outlook on life. And so when it came to my honours year, the, the course was you had it's one like year. It's like the capstone year at a British university, right? You yeah, do a project. yeah it's, your, it's your big climax to the whole thing. It's a big project that says, this is what I've learned, this is what I can do. And we had one year to do it and it could be anything. The scope of work was just go and design something from start to finish. And that included business models and, and market research and you know, the whole concept development of this stuff, manufacturing, engineering, all the way to building a prototype sort of type thing wow. or as close to what you can reasonably can. And I, did, I had no idea what I wanted to do, none whatsoever. I was, I was sort of struggling in the first couple of weeks, but I don't know what I want to spend the next year doing because if I get the wrong thing, this is going to suck because you've got <laughs> a year to do this. And I remember I was walking through what's called the St. Nicholas Shopping Centre in Aberdeen and what the cheat we used to do for, for design work is you go to the magazine store and just look at all the tech magazines. Because all the tech magazines have a mix of stuff which is real and stuff which is a bit futuristic and right. a bit off the wall. And you look for the colors and the forms and the, you know, and you get kind of inspired by the latest sort of developments and that stuff. And one of them was a, there was a, a copy of, it was Popular Science, I think it was called Popular Science. And on the front cover, it had a graphic of the Tiburon ROV that was about to be made for Monterey Bay. And it just looked cool. It's just that image of, the, of, of, of an ROV looking at a big jellyfish, and it was an artist's impression of it. So that's a remotely operated vehicle. It's a robot, but it's tethered to a yeah. surface ship. Yeah, it's about the size of a van, and it's on a big umbilical, and you can drive it around. It has manipulator arms in the front and cameras. And this particular one was going to be really good for midwater. They wanted it to be quiet and stealthy, and you could sneak up move on around it. Yeah, and it's certainly a lot of the gelatinous stuff came from that. And, it, it, you know, it was eventually built and it was amazing. Yeah. And it has a huge legacy and it's, I think it's gone now. I think it's been surpassed by something else. So yeah, exactly. It makes feel really old. <laughs> so I remember thinking that. Underwater stuff looks cool. And, of course, in Aberdeen, everything is oil and gas. Everything is subsea hydrocarbon industry. There's, there are ROVs, there are ships in the harbour, you know, and, and that just sort of naturally led to thinking, well, these things are all multi-million dollar things that, are not accessible to me or anybody else. So I thought, well, well maybe we do something subsea. So I thought, well, why don't we just build, or why not design a cheap way of getting instruments down to deep sea floor or whatever it is and back up again quite quickly, which was basically accidentally developing the lander, which already existed. So I got in touch with a, a professor who was at Aberdeen University, he was at the other university. And he said, oh yeah, we do this stuff all the time. So he, he was already building landers? Yeah, but again, they're all one-offs. They were like a hundred k each. They were, you know, and 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 this to some degree they still are. But they, they were very specific experiments to do with what he okay. was doing at the time, which was tracking deep sea fish. Kind of bespoke kinds of things. Oh, very much. Very so. artisanal. Very, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spoke to I spoke to him and some of his engineers for a bit, and then went back and and spent the year doing that, and graduated with a good degree, and that was it. And did you build one? I built a replica one. I didn't build didn't build one that would ever work because there's no way we could. Yeah. afford that with a budget of zero <laughs> so <laughs> you know welcome to art school you know yeah. a budget of nothing 
So I built a full-size one, and we, I mean, you know, we stuck it in the pond on the, at the university to make it look a bit aquatic and stuff and took pictures of it. And that. But yeah, the idea was you could sort of like mass manufacture it, you could disassemble it on deck. It, did, it wasn't cumbersome and, and, and it was flexible on what it could take and so on. But you know, in hindsight, there's sort of some elements of that that still exist in the designs that I do now. So again, there's a little bit of that creep forward. But where it went from that is uh, when I left university, I think I was completely and utterly disenfranchised with, with, with everything. I ended up as a removal man. What do you mean by that? Do you, I mean, you didn't like academic life, so... I think a lot of people feel this when you leave university because you think you're you're heading up for this degree. You're going to get to this pinnacle where someone piece, gives you a piece of paper and say you're now qualified. Now it's to be done. This. And then you go, oh, great! I'm going to go. I'm going to be one of these guys. I'm going to be an industrial designer now. And then you hit this wall where there's, there's just no jobs for industrial designers. And you're like, okay, this is going to be difficult. I think you, especially as a as a bloke, I think we come out of this quite arrogant and thinking. I've got a degree now. I've got an undergraduate degree. I'm, I'm just going to be this designer now. I just need to find what company I want to work for and send them my CV and we'll see how it goes. And then suddenly you realize after 50, 100 CVs that, or they resumes, don't uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't even get a response. <laughs> so suddenly you realize, like, you know, you're broke. I was living in a high rise apartment, which was really grim. I think we were on the 16th floor and it was like drug dealers and families beating each other up downstairs and all the rest of it and it was just not very nice I ended up as a removal man that was the best job I could get because we don't have that phrase across the pond what's a removal man is that the guy who re- repossesses things they've not paid bills on or a garbage man or what, a removal man normally is, is someone if you're moving house they come oh, along right. and they pack up your house and they put it on a van and then build it at your new house yeah the moving van crew yeah so I used to do it for corporate companies so oil and gas companies we'd spend a week sorting out a huge big open plan office for some oil company who were moving premises and then come in on the Friday, Saturday and Saturday night and have it all moved and all the computers set up at the other end. So when when they clocked off on the Friday night in one building, they could clock back in on Monday morning in another wow. building and everything is there. So it, it was slightly better money than being the guy in the, in the home removals, but uh, it wasn't very nice. It was a good camaraderie, I guess. And then after a while, I got a job, a slightly better job as a technician in a high school. In a high school, wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that. That was really depressing as well. I thought that was one of the, the probably the laziest people I've ever met in my life. It was really just uninspiring and trying to come to terms with the fact that you know you're just going to have to cut it in life and try and do whatever it takes to make some money. It's no longer about what you want to do. It's just about needing to make some money to pay the rent, and that's what it did for about a year, year and a half, or something. And then I opened up the newspaper one day when I was inspired to get out of there as quick as possible. And there was a job advert for the professor I was talking to at Aberdeen University. And it was, there were three jobs. I think it was an electrical technician, a mechanical technician, and a logistics technician. And they were asking for seven years experience, phenomenally low salary. So I'm like, I don't have seven years experience. But then part of me, even, even at 21 years old or 22, however it was, I thought it was really in hindsight, I think it was quite smart. I'm thinking no one in their right mind is going to apply for that salary who's got seven, years, seven experience. years experience. Right. So I just put my, I just went for it and I got an interview and I, and I got the job. And they said, uh, you know, basically you look after the mechanics and help these guys build these landers. And how do you fancy going to see? I'm like, well, I don't know. And that age, you're just like, yeah, whatever. Okay, I'll have a crack at that. And I went to see, I went out to the North Atlantic on Discovery. And I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. So this professor was already working at, at what kind of depths in the ocean? 
4,800 meters was was considered to be very deep then. So 12, 15,000 feet for those of us on this side of the pond, which is yes. There's there's a lot of the seafloor at, at that depth. It's yeah, most, most of the planets that yeah, depth. So yeah. that was kind of standard deep sea depth was would yeah. be the, the the abyssal plains of the North Atlantic or the Pacific or something like that. RRS Discovery Royal Research Ship Discovery belongs to the UK government or is it attached to universities? No, it's government. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's since been replaced, but yeah, the, so the, you yeah, know, the yeah. ships evolve over time. But yeah, the, the one, the big one at the time was RRS Discovery, and it's, it's, there's now a, a new discovery. But over the first five years, we did well. I did probably five or six trips on that, and plus trips on Greek vessels and Norwegian vessels and things like that. And I, you know, I had no ties. I don't really know what I was doing. I was just every time Monty Prieed was was the professor, and every time Monty came in and said, "We've got a job on," I'm like, "Yeah, sure, whatever. Just sign me up." <laughs> so, so I ended up living this sort of hobo lifestyle of just jumping on ship after ship with so ever great. evolving colleagues and ever evolving bits of equipment. And, you know, I was not involved in the science at all. It was like, you know, we need you to do X, Y, and Z. Come, don't go and do it. And I'll just go and do the best job. We had some good times, bad times, and it worked yeah. out quite well. And then... Did you like going to sea? You, you, clearly, yeah, loved it. you clearly don't get seasick. Nah, sometimes you do, but yeah. it's, there's ways for dealing with that. What did you like about it? It was interesting. I, I, I remember going back to the story of telling my mum and dad I wanted to be a drummer. I remember there was my, they still laugh about this because they, they, they seem to specifically remember me saying, whatever I do in life, I don't want to have to wear a suit to work. So, <laughs> and then you go on a ship and you're like, I'm never going to wear a suit to work if I keep doing that. Brilliant. I just like the fact that it felt like we were doing something. I, you know, I, I just... Even now, I still struggle with elements of the job where it feels like you're spending a lot of time doing something and there's no tangible output. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. just doing stuff. You're just sort of filling Turning it a crank. Just, yeah. Whereas when you go to sea, you're like, okay, so the lander is built. Here it is. We put it in the sea. It comes back and we have a hard drive now that has X amount of data on it. This is stuff that we didn't have yesterday. We now have it. So you're going and you're collecting. And at the end of it, you come back and the boss says, right, what did you do? And he says, well... You know, here's 28 surface to sea floor profiles of bioluminescence across the entire Mediterranean. And then you just drop that on the desk and go, and go, there you go, yeah, done it. Nailed very it. Cool. And that, that felt satisfying. I guess it must be the same as like, a, like you going back to the music thing. If, if a musician goes into a studio and works on stuff and comes back and says, here's a song. You, so the effort right. you've put in has something you can hold in your hand and say, yeah. I did that over the last month. Yeah. And you play a gig and you can, you get sort of the value proposition coming to, to a close, right? how the song goes over, how the audience reacts. Yeah, I think that, that's what I find satisfying. I, I mean, I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine being someone who's done like finance, for example, who's just churning over other people's yeah. budget accounts and stuff like that. And I don't know, it's not for me. I don't get satisfaction of that. I like to, to go and see, do something and, and feel like you've brought something back, you've created something. But you did go on eventually. What persuaded you or drove you eventually to go on to a master's and a PhD degree? <laughs> and, and and to stay and to stay so focused on the deepest parts of the ocean. Well, that was all an accident too. So the academic side of things, you know, I was absolutely no way interested in an academic career. I just liked the fact I was working on boats and messing around with mechanics and stuff. That was great. I, I wasn't particularly enamored or impressed by being at a university with lots of PhD students. That whole culture of PhD yeah. students and academia, it wasn't really for me, you know. And uh, anyway, so Monty, my boss, came in after about, I don't know, six months or something in the job. And 
he didn't realize that that terribly low salary that I'd applied for with no seven years experience meant that they dropped the salary even more. Oh, uh, and he came in, and, but I, I, you know, what, what can you do? I was living in this horrible place and everything else. I needed a job that was at least interesting and paid the bills. And he came in one day, and I'll never forget it. He came in and he said, "Yeah, she looked at me and says, I've just found out how much you get paid.'" And I was like, "Yeah, I know, it sucks." Eh? <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> That's great. Such is life. <laughs> like, you know. And he said, "You know what? I can get you out of this. You know, the stuff that you're designing and building right now, and taking to see and all the rest of it. If you write this up in your own time, over the next year or so, you could submit it as a master's by research. And if you have a master's degree, they have to give you more money." So I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, all right. What, what's that?" So I'm sort of googling. I don't think there was even Google at the time. But anyway. Google get a master's degree. <laughs> I was like, what is a master's degree? I don't know what a master's degree is. I, I, you know, I wasn't really not interested. It's not something, it's not, master's and PhDs are not something that really exists in industrial design or, or anything yeah. like that kind of thing. It's a practicum. It's all practical. Yeah. So after about six months, I, I wrote it up at night and I was, I was quite getting into it. I thought I quite liked this because, again, it felt like the stuff you're doing during the day and you go back and you, you turn it into a document and then you go quite like that and you make the figures and you do and you explain your train of thought and what worked what didn't work so after six months i came and threw on his desk and went there you go can have that master's thing now you're talking about and he was like oh all right and he went away and he came back and he said look you know the good thing about working with monty is he was a biologist physiologist on shallow water fish he got into deep sea quite late on because he absorbed a lot of engineering so he became half an engineer from a biologist and i think he was seeing the same thing evolving here. And he said, uh, you know what, why don't you just take another two years or three years, whatever it was, part-time, keep going the way you're going and make it a PhD. And I'm like, you are joking, right? <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you're kidding, right? You want me to do a PhD? I'm a drummer. Like, you're like, talking like, about this, PhDs? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what, like this lot, you know, all the, there are, you know, there's, yeah, there's the whole weird culture of PhD students at the time. And I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys. You know what I mean? And he said, no, no, it's fine. Do it. Once you get a PhD, if, if, if you become a doctor, and I'm like, you're not, you're kidding. You, if I do this, you're going to call me doctor, right? Is this, is this how this works? <laughs> And uh, it was it, it was literally that kind of conversation. It's, I'm not, I'm not, you know, was calling me doctor. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. So uh, yeah, so I took it on, and I just started writing in the evenings. I had nothing else to do, you know, and, you know, and and I submitted that, and it all went rather well. And then randomly, my defence for logistical reasons ended up being in a small town called Helsingor in Denmark. Yeah, and I went into the defence, and they that's where you have to, to explain the, to people what you did and. Yeah, you get it's basically an examination. That's a sort of interview of, of of an expert from your own university and an external expert from another university. And they sit down and they, they've read it and they've got loads of comments and they can last for two hours to all day. To some yeah. some have even gone two days before, you know, and depending on what it is they want you to do. And then you give you a massive list of corrections and comments and all these things. And you have to go away and do all that and then resubmit it and then you get your thing. Anyway, so we sat there, I was on my own, and then uh, they said, Congratu-. at the end of it, they're like, congratulations, Dr. Jameson. I was like, oh, oh. Woo. oh well, that's a thing, you know. <laughs> but I think after most PhD defences, there's normally a massive party and there's yeah. champagne and cakes and everyone's waiting for you to come out of this room. I just, just sat in a bar on my own in Helsingor and just sort of sat there going, I don't really know what just happened there. <laughs> so just, it was a really sort of massive anticlimax. It was just like, oh, well, that's kind of cool, and, you know. So Alan, that is the most fabulous PhD story I think I've ever, ever heard. I love it. <laughs> it was just one big happy accident. It was it was all about trying to get, I mean, don't get me wrong. You don't get these things for nothing. I did, I did exactly no. what you have to do to get it. But the reasons for it, I, I was never chasing it. I was never asking for it. It was just, yeah. 
opportunities came up. So that's what happened there. And then at some point during the PhD, we had a, a conference in Aberdeen. This is how, this is how we ended up going, or how I ended up going going really deep, was we had a conference in Aberdeen to do with taking photographs of the seafloor. And it, I was involved in a project where we were designing upside-down periscopes. So you slam them into the seafloor and you take a photograph of the sediment underneath rather than coring it. So you look at all the different layers and different animals under the sediment. And we're sat in a bar in Aberdeen with the guys from Virginia and from Seattle and from wherever, I can't remember, it's a whole bunch of guys. And it became one, after a few drinks, it becomes one of these hero stories, like, who's got the deepest photographs? And someone's like, oh, I've got one from 4,800. And someone's like, well, I've got one from 5,000. And this, I remember, it was Bob Diaz from Virginia. He said, I've got one from 6,100 meters. And we're like, but your camera's only ready to 6,000 meters. He's like, yep, that's how I roll, you know? <laughs> and I remember sort of sitting and speaking to my colleague at the time. So, well, how deep, how deep can you go? And they're like, I don't know, I guess it's probably Mariana, I suppose. I'm like, all right. And there was a Japanese person at the conference who worked for Jamstack at the time. He said, look, you've got this big Kaiko ROV. Jamstack being the NASA of the ocean for Japan. Yeah, the Japanese marine science and technology place. They're big, big engineering. Really yeah. big stuff. Big submersibles and ROVs and all sorts of huge fleet of ships as well. Uh, so there was someone there from Jamstack. So the next day we started speaking to them and saying, you know, can we get a go at this Kaiko thing? It's really naively. Because we, we, we want we to go deeper. You know? What's Kaiko? Kaiko was the name of, of that deep ROV that was the first vehicle to get oh, right. to Challenger Deep anytime recently. And they put a little plaque down there. It was 1995 they got to the bottom of that and they took a core sample and some whatever. Was it tethered? Unfortunately, it was lost. It was lost in 2003. So uh. we, we pulled together some money to build a camera for it. And we finally got the money about a week before Kaiko was lost in a typhoon. <laughs> so, so, so we ended up sitting on this camera on the bench for years. And then, anyway, so. After my PhD, I ended up off San Diego on a ship called New Horizon. And while I was at Scripps, I was just doing it for that particular job. It was just supporting somebody else. It was just building some gear. And, and Scripps is Institute of Oceanography in San Diego? Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, it's another big one, big oceanographic institute. And uh, the day before we got on the ship, we went to the library. And I was introduced to a guy at the library who was a librarian. And said, oh, what are you doing here? And I explained and at the time, I can't remember if this was before or after my PhD, I can't remember, but I had did some theoretical designs for full ocean depth camera systems. Uh, and it was really interesting. It's, the, it's almost 36,000 feet, right? 36,000 feet. And what you need are like steel or titanium pressure housings so to stop your cameras being crushed. And the interesting bit was the window, because obviously the camera needs to see out. So how you deal with acrylic or perspex or sapphire or glass under really high pressure. So I did a whole chapter on, on how that isn't actually that difficult. Anyway, I speak to, I speak to this librarian, purely a chance encounter, and he said, oh, you may, I've got something you might be interested in. And it was a, a Russian guy called uh, Georgi Believ wrote up everything the Russians did over the last 50 years, and scripts had paid it to get it translated. Wow. And That's famous stuff. They printed off a whole bunch of copies, and nobody nobody wanted it. So it's, it's the size of a PhD thesis. It's like two inches thick. Wow. And he said the guy died in 1989, I think, or shortly after he wrote this. So this was everything the Russians and the Danish did from 1950 through 1970, which is the, like the, the, the first ever real exploration of, of, of Hegel, of really deep stuff. So he gave me that. I was like, oh, thanks very much. That's really nice of you. You know, that was it. And anyway, so I went on the ship the next day. And there wasn't much going on. And I just read it from cover to cover. And it introduced me to taxonomic rankings. 
to all these different species and families and orders and classes. And because I don't have any formal training in biology, but this had it all laid out. All the critters. So suddenly you realize just spending three weeks on a boat with not much to do, just reading this thing and then realizing that actually, you know, we could do this. We could totally do this. Just reading that, and no one's done anything. Kaiko, I think, had you know gone down and, and hit the bottom, but no one's really doing anything. So, so eventually we applied, we put together some designs, and we applied to me and Monty applied to the UK government to collaborate with various people who had ships going to the right places, and we got the money. And it was a big scramble on to build the first Hadelander because I had no for all sorts of reasons I had no support from anyone else. I had to do the whole thing myself from start to finish, and I built two of them in the end. And the race was on to get them onto a German ship in Samoa from Aberdeen. <laughs> and we had like flotation coming from Germany. We had ballast weights coming from New Zealand. We had, you know, just bits of this thing all over the world are going to meet in a dock in Samoa, get on this German ship. We're going to go out to Tonga Trench and throw the whole thing down to six kilometers underwater. So hang on a second. You've mentioned, you said the word Hadel a few times in passing. I, I will just pause for a second and set the stage. Right. Hadel is like like from the word Hades, meaning the, the depths of hell. What is the Hadel zone again? Where where is it? How deep is it? How big is it? The Hadel zone is, is anything deeper than six kilometers. Okay, about twenty thousand feet. So that that's the definition. Anything deeper than six thousand meters, and most of those are the big deep trenches. Everyone's heard of the Mariana, but they're actually about another. Depending on your definition of trench and trough and fracture zone, there's there's probably about forty or fifty. How much of the ocean is that deep? How much of the ocean? Not much. Okay. In terms of footprint, it's probably less than 2%. But in Volume? terms of the depth range, it's the deepest 45. So it's it's ah. vertically, it's huge, but horizontally, it's, it's quite small. Okay. But it's significant if you start to think of these areas as being like islands. If you imagine you, you turned the ocean upside down, every one of these trends, like the, the, the Himalaya is roughly the same volume as the Mariana. So okay. when wow. you flip it upside down, I didn't you realize know that. that the big oh yeah, the big flat abyssal plains which span most of the planet are sort of flat, big, huge, enormous areas, and they are sort of incised by these deep bits. And those deep bits are, even though they're going the negative to the positive of an island, they, you can think of them as island and things. So, so that's what we call Hadel, and that was a uh, a name that was coined in 1951 by a Danish scientist who decided that it was so different beyond 6,000 metres that it deserved its own name. Yeah. And I think the Russians were calling it the ultra-abyssal at the time. And he decided it, it was it was too unique to be a subcategory of, of somewhere else. So it got his own name. It's way deep. And it intellectually and it, it physically is remote from all of us two-footed critters on land and intellectually is very remote. Why, why is it important to understand or study that place? Because you're always looking for depth-related trends, how things change from the surface to the seafloor. So everything in the ocean, the deep sea, and most of the planet's deep sea by a long, long way, uh, is driven by what's happening on the surface. So all that photosynthesis and plankton and phytoplankton and all these warming and CO2 absorptions, all these wonderful things that happen on the surface are having a controlling, control what's happening below it. So that's controlling what's happening for most of the planet. Plus, these water masses are huge and they're moving around and they're regulating climate and stuff like that. Plus, the trenches themselves are the only place in the world where two, the trenches are formed when two tectonic plates meet each other head on and one gets forced down below the other one. So that the mud at the bottom of some of these trenches might be 6,000 metres deep. 
and Whoa. that's getting that's getting pushed back into the Earth's mantle. So, if you imagine all this atmospheric CO2 kicking around, all this carbon's getting soaked up by the phytoplankton, zooplankton, seagrasses, kelp forest, all the rest of it, all that stuff eventually starts to sink, and all that carbon sinks to the bottom. Trenches are a sort of V-shape and cross-section, so it all accumulates at the bottom, and it's the only place in the world where it's disposed of. And it's very slow. I mean, it's like eight centimetres a year these things are moving, but the volume of carbon which is getting pushed, disposed of in the Earth's mantle is huge. I mean, the other thing is the depth of trends as well. We're, we're looking at how, how does things change from the sweet spot on the surface down to the bottom. And, and you can't you can't extrapolate easily in deep water stuff. So it's better to just treat the ocean as one whole body of water and not say that we like the surface, but we don't like the deep bit because most of it is the deep bit. And it's and that's the psychological problem with getting people to engage with deep seas because we're saying you love the top 50 meters because that's where you go fishing, you go diving, you do scuba diving, all these other things. Uh, when you get to 200 meters beyond that, it's a deep sea and people think, well, that's not of concern to me. Basically, well, actually it is because most of your planet is that. <laughs> so it, sh it should be of a concern. And the other thing I don't like about this thing about the surface versus the deep sea is in terms of responsibility to try and understand how the planet functions and what lives in it. If you imagine, and it's all driven by people's weird relationship with depth. And I think it's because we're air-breathing mammals. We just hate the idea of depth. We call it deepest, darkest fears for a reason. We hate depth and we hate the dark. And unfortunately, the deep sea is, is all of that. All of both. <laughs> so the problem there is if you were to say, for example, from now on, let's go back to when we knew nothing about the rainforest. I said, right, here's the entire Amazon rainforest. We're going to study everything in the first 200 meters. And the rest of it, forget it. It's just deep forest. It's just monsters of the trees. We've got no interest in that whatsoever because let's face it, none of us are going to really ever go beyond 200 meters into this forest. So we'll just write off the rest of the Amazon basin beyond 200 meter mark. Oh, that's a great analogy. But that's exactly what you do for most of the planet. You know? And the same analogy. with Antarctica. You wouldn't just go at 200 meters into Antarctica and go, right, see the, the rest of this entire continent, which by the yeah. way is minuscule relative to the deep sea. Yeah. Forget it. It's not, worth, it's not worth a hassle. It's too difficult. It's expensive. And let's be honest, it doesn't give us anything in terms of reward. But when it goes deep, we automatically go, oh, well, we don't belong there. Forget it. No, yeah. that's fine. I'm happy to ignore that. Well, it is hard to get there. And, you know, if you don't have the right kind of gear that you're designing, you know, you, you would die there. But I want to touch one more moment on trying to get a sense of scale. I read somewhere that trying to get a sense of the scale of the deep sea, meaning 4,000 meters, 12,000 feet and deeper, mm -hmm. that just, just in the North Atlantic, the area of the ocean that is that big is bigger than the moon. Is that right? Bigger yes. than the surface of the moon. Really? Yeah. The surface of the moon is less than the North Atlantic. Yeah. The moon's tiny. The diameter of the moon is less than the width of Australia. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the size of the deep sea, the size of the deep sea in the Pacific is the size of 26 Australias. Wow. I've worked it out. That's science fact now. Yeah. So <laughs> other biases about the deep sea? I mean, the one I always think of, because like you, I've heard this trope more times than I can count. We know more about our moon than we know about the deep sea. And you know, it's usually said by oceanographers who are trying to use it to say there should be more investment in yes. studying the ocean. I And I sympathize completely with that view, but I'm not sure it's true. I mean, utter nonsense. Yeah. It, comes, it comes from uh, 
a guy who first wrote that in 1956. So he wrote this long before the moon landings, long before we knew very much about the deep sea. But it's such a nice nugget yeah. that it just will not go away. Even my current employers tweeted a picture or a video of me and my colleague recently, and the caption they put on it was, we know more about the surface of the moon yeah. than the deep sea. And it's like, you know, I've done whole podcasts. I do tutorials and undergraduate levels on these. There's a, there's a whole, there's a few of them. That's probably the worst one. But it's one of these statements that will just not go away. And even if it was true, what are you basing knowing about on? And people yeah. now say, well, it's about we have better maps of Mars than we have the deep sea. But that's not what he was talking about in 1956. And having a map of the seafloor means nothing. Having a map of Mars means nothing. Is whether that map tells you information about Mars or about the deep mm. sea is what matters. Just collecting images isn't really it. And if, and if you can get a satellite into orbit, you can map a planet fairly quickly if it's got no yeah. atmosphere or ocean. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, right now, I, you know, tonight I can go out tonight and I can see 50% of the moon with my own eyes. Right. So it's quite easy to produce a map. Of the... Observing and measuring through the vacuum of, of space is way, way easier than through yeah. layers, the, the big blue blanket of the ocean. You can use lasers and light and you have to use sound in the ocean. It's a lot harder. What frustrates me is, is uh, you wonder why they're saying that. Is, is that one of these statements that is, one, because it feels like we're shaming ourselves and saying, you know, you need to invest more money in deep sea. When I hear it, I think I find it quite offensive. It's like, no, actually, I know quite a lot about the deep sea. So yes, you do. <laughs> you know, are you telling me I'm not working hard enough? What's, what's your problem? Like, so, you know, <laughs> I think I've worked pretty hard. You know, I've done my bit. You know, don't keep telling me I know nothing about my own subject. I do. So we do, we know loads about the deep sea. Loads, of, loads and loads and loads and loads. There's thousands and thousands of papers on deep sea. And I think by constantly telling people we know nothing about it, is damaging because it keeps that feeling of a frontier that we don't understand. It's a place that we shouldn't go. It keeps it, it keeps that distance between us. And then what we should mm. be saying is the deep sea is amazing. Let's go see it. Let's go and do stuff in it. Let's let's understand it. Let's share it in such a way that people really get to enjoy it. But instead, it's like, oh no, we know nothing about this. It's a weird place that we shouldn't be there. We don't exist. And the, the second thing that really, really gets me going is the constant referring to monsters of the deep and creatures of the deep. It's even in Blue Planet. The tone and the word changes between the Coral Reef episode and the Deep Sea episode yes. is basically subconsciously telling you, this is not for you. You do not belong here. This is not something you should care about. This is evil. It's underworldly. It's abyssal. It's gloomy. And yes, it's for entertainment's sake. And that's what the Deep Sea has become. I think it's just become entertainment. It's spooky entertainment. And it's difficult when you're trying to get the planet to care about it, to undo the damage that that has already done. It's interesting you use the word spooky. I've often thought about Homer's line of the cold, gray, fish-bearing sea. So the human relationship to space is everyone has the moon above them. Everyone has stars above them. Every, every little kid is laid on their back and daydreamed or looking up at the skies. It's sort of up and out and lifting and aspirational. And yeah. as you said, every bit of literature and metaphor we have at our fingertips and in our experience about the sea is cold, gray, dark, gloomy, mysterious. And it's down. So when we're upset, we use the phrase, I'm feeling down. Yeah. And there, there is this positive and negative, that down is negative and up is good. So the, 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 the stars and the planets are, are seen as a positive thing. We can go, when going back to our fear of deep water, that's because I think evolutionarily we have experienced that firsthand. People haven't experienced what it's like to be in a vacuum 
I mean, it's equally as horrible, right? You're, you're going to die in a vacuum as quickly as you're going to die underwater. But we don't care. We still look up and go, oh, it's amazing, glorious, majestic. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great to be there? <laughs> yeah. But when <laughs> yeah. you deep sea, the first question anyone ever says when you talk about going underwater, they go, was it scary? It was a horrible walk into that. No, exactly. Like that. Yeah. But in space, they're like, oh, yeah, I'd love to be a spaceman. Where are you terrified? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, space wants to kill you as much as the sea does. <laughs> right? just... Absolutely true. <laughs> So you've been you've building landers for many years to let scientists get information and data from the deep sea without physically having to go there. You also have gone there in submersibles that can take people that deep. When when was the first time you did that? The submersibles came relatively on because there wasn't any. Yeah. Was it with Victor Vescovo the first time? It wasn't with Victor. It was in his sub. It was with uh, the head of Triton. It was Patrick Lahey. So... Technically, the first time we made an attempt was, so I got involved with the Five Deeps expedition, which was funded by Victor Vescovo, who created a submarine built by Triton submersibles that can go to the deepest places. How did you get involved with that? I mean, I got this, I got this email out of the blue that invited me in. What was your story? <laughs> so for 10 years or so, we'd been going around all over the world with the landers, and we discovered the deepest fish, the deepest this, the deepest that. We'd started producing the first big data sets, genomics, all the rest. We're building up the first big, huge, multi-trench global data set on, on scientific exploration of these things using remote systems. And somewhere in all that, uh, an opportunity came up to write a book on the Hadal Zone, which was just, I mean, in hindsight now, it's, it's kind of grossly out of date, but it came out in 2015. And I had submitted it in 2013. And I remember my head of school at the time, she said to me, don't waste your time writing a book. Because books don't mean anything. You won't get evaluated for that. And I remember thinking that was really sad that the universities are discouraging scientists from writing books now. You think that's <laughs> books are sort There's of a, something mm, bad about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's frowned upon to write a book. But so I did that. Again, I did that in my own time just because out of resentment or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, so I wrote this book and then realized that there's obviously no money to be made whatsoever in writing academic books. That was the first lesson. <laughs> don't, this is not going to make you a millionaire. And then, uh, I still think it's quite funny when she said, all that matters are scientific publications, books don't make any difference. So at some point on the other side of the world, Victor's putting together his plan with Triton and so on. And ultimately what he wanted to do was go around the world, dive the deepest point in each ocean, and then sell it all. Sell the ship and the sub, the works. And I think it was Triton that said to him, if you want to sell it at the end, it's you're going to need to demonstrate some kind of scientific component to it. Because at that point, it was nothing more than a hero diver. It was to get them down, back up, and say, I've done it. There, were, there was no science plan at all in the whole expedition. There still wasn't really. But So they just basically Googled it, and they came across the book. And Patrick phoned me up one day and says, right, we're needing a scientist. You've, you're the guy that wrote the book. You're it. And then we started talking about landers. So I ended up designing the landers as well for them. For my listeners' benefit, Victor Vescovo, entrepreneur, investor who commissioned this submersible that can go to the very, very bottom of the ocean, the deepest point, commissioned the ship that can carry it around and engaged Alan and his robotic landers to add the science program and headed off to, first of all, find the deepest point in each of the five oceans and then get there. Yeah. So, yeah. So the first thing we did was myself and colleagues did a desktop study of where the five deeps actually should be. And that sort of prompted Victor into investing in a multi-beam echo sounder, which is a whole-mounted system that can map and measure the depth and stuff like that. So, yeah, and 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 second phone call I ever got was from somebody in the project who phoned me up and said, "You will never get in that submarine." So just so you know that you're you're the chief scientist of this expedition. There's a budget of zero dollars, and you will not be allowed to dive in the submarine. 
So I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound that attractive, but okay, you know, I, I know enough about. It. So my 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 feeling when I joined was that I don't know, it came quite evident early on that it was still a very experimental submarine and it might not produce anything particularly interesting, but the landers were really good. So you know, we made a quite a lot of progress early on with the landers, and uh, at some point before we even got to the first of the five dates, Victor's we're in New York, I think, having dinner somewhere. And Victor said, I think we should get Jameson down on Puerto Rico French on the first deep. I'm like, oh, okay, that's new. So things were starting to change already. So I thought that was great. And then Puerto Rico turned out to be a, not the best trip in the world. They got the first five deep in, but only just. And it, it wasn't a pleasant first deep. Then we went down to Antarctica. Did you dive? No, no, not at all. Uh, the subject, it just wasn't ready. It was, just, it was, these guys are working all hours trying to get this thing up and running. And it, it felt like it, they needed another year just to really iron it out, but it, there was this huge pressure on to get it done. And, you know, they did it, and it was great. They got the bag number one. Then we went down to Antarctica, and Antarctica probably a bit too late in the season, so the weather wasn't great. And, you know, we did some work, and what we got was amazing. It was really, really good. And Victor did his deepest dive. on his. He, he wants to do them all solo. So, unfortunately, the cameras didn't work either, so the, the, scientifically the sub produced nothing. And then... We started running away from a storm and then a, a, a weather window opened up and he said, do you want to dive? I was like, to the deepest point in Antarctica. I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So we, we did it and we got in the sub and the sub got took a wave. Uh, the way in which we were deploying the sub at that point was not optimal, I would say, compared to what we're doing now. And the sub hit the back of the ship pretty hard. But we went for it anyway and we got to about 400 metres underwater and we got a call from the ship saying abort 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 get out so we came back up and that was that very disappointing so i got to 400 meters under antarctica never got to the bottom so that was very disappointing at that point i I was ready to completely just leave the whole program because i didn't think at that point that the five deeps was really going anywhere there was all sorts of problems it was a lot of people all trying to do something and it was it, it felt like the it wasn't going to produce a lot of science for the, for the, for the amount of time we're going to spend on this thing. Because at that point, I'd already spent about four or five months away from yeah. home and to, to come back with essentially nothing. There were a lot of competing interests at that stage, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, I stuck with it. And I remember I decided, right, I'll do the Indian Ocean one. I won't invite any more people on board. So, you know, I'll take the hit if it all goes wrong. But we'll, I'll do Java and see, because that was a kind of short one. And then so Victor did his dive and then said, right, Patrick Lahey from Triton will we'll do the science dive and we'll do a science dive. And I said, okay, I want to go up down to the deepest point and up the wall and look for chemosynthetic habitats, which are bacterial, interesting bacterial things going on at the bottom of the trench. Over that whole trip, it just got better and better and better and better. The atmosphere felt better. People were gelling better. The ship was working better. The sub was working better. The data coming in from the landers was just phenomenal. Just we're finding octopus two thousand meters deeper than any other octopus, right? You know, multiple times, and there was like things on that we're filming animals we'd never expected to see at those depths. It was a beautiful place, and eventually the day came for the dive. And as per always, I just never get you, never ever got my hopes up for any dive. I've done thirteen now, but I've, of the thirteen I've done, I think I've also done six that have been aborted underwater. So you know, I, I think you don't get your hopes up because the operation is a complex one and it's lots of factors and there's no point 
getting too excited because you know that it could get pulled at any moment. So for that one, I was I was even still on deck, just going, nah, it's still not going to happen. Something's going to something's going to happen in the next <laughs> Always four does. minutes that's going to stop this. <laughs> you know? yeah, and we did it, and we had such a good time. We had such a laugh. It was just me and Patrick in the submarine, and you know the hatch was leaking all the way down at the bottom. It never stopped leaking until five thousand meters underwater, and you would think that should be a scary experience, but when you know someone like Patrick who who belongs underwater, who designed and he didn't buy, build it, but he designed it. How deep did you go on that one? 7,180 meters, I think. Where did yeah. you first go deeper than 10 kilometers? Was that Mariana? Uh, Mariana. So short, shortly after Java, yeah. I decided to stay with the program, went to Mariana. Again, no science dives from Challenger Deep. There still hasn't been one as far as I'm aware. So Victor did his two solo dives and then Triton did one for themselves. And then they went down with a guy from DNVGL, which is a company that certifies the sub to say what depth it's good to go. So that was all fine. And then at the end... Nobody expected to do four dives on Challenger Deep within a week, right? <laughs> because up until that point, there'd only ever been two people. And the, yeah, the context here is kind of amazing. Four dives in a week. What had yeah. happened before that was two dives 30 years apart. Yeah. I mean, so... so 1960, Don went down, Don Walsh and Jack Picard went down for 20 minutes and saw nothing. And then James Cameron went down and... 2013 spent what an hour or something like that yeah maybe it was interesting but it, both subs were damaged and never dived that deep again yeah that and then it. you turn around and in 2019 you've got a sub that can do four dives to the deepest deepest point in the ocean within a week that's like oh it gets better we could have done more we could have done 10 but for the schedule meant that we had to leave but anyway so they did the four and we're all sort of looking at each other going, but we're, we've got we've, we've still got a few days to go here. This, you know, I guess Let's we expected it to in. be. Yeah, so they said, well, wh- where do you want to go? Do, do Challenger Deep. And I had done a, something like 50 lander deployments in the next deepest point in Mariana, which is called Serenity. And there's lots of interesting reasons why to go to Serenity. But to be honest, I don't find Challenger Deep particularly interesting. So Serenity Deep is slightly shallower. It's 10,720 meters as opposed to 10,920 meters or whatever it is. It's a couple hundred meters difference. So I said, okay. And this is where my 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 inner self is like, I've just been offered a trip to Challenger Deep. I could do this. But if I do that, I'm doing it for the hero diving reasons, not for the scientific reasons. There's a scientific reason to go Serena, but not Challenger. So I'll go with Serenity. So I'm not one of the... You don't need the badge. People have been a challenge today, but I don't really care. And one of the cool thing was, was Don Walsh, who was the, the pilot of the Trieste in 1960. He was with us. And uh, he's a good friend of mine now. And he had these like Trieste medallions that you get from the US Navy. And I think it was his last one he had. And he came into my office and he, he, he sort of shuffled in and put one on my desk and said, Do you have that? I said, I can't take that. You know, I'm not even doing Challenger. I mean, I, I, it's amazing how, how by doing Serena and Challenger, it still, it almost haunts me. People keep saying, but you're the guy who didn't do Challenger, Dave. And uh, Don gave me the medallion from Trieste. I said, there you go. I said, why are you giving me that? He says, because you're the only guy in the world who's been offered a trip to Challenger, Dave, and didn't take it. <laughs> so that would be Don. That would be Don. <laughs> yeah, so that, that actually means more because, you know, doing it for the right reasons. So, anyway, oh, yeah. so we, I did that one with uh, Victor, and that was 10,700 and something. And that, that was, again, that was amazing. We found these big sulfur mounds, you know, just stuff that we weren't expecting to see. And that, that, well, that was really good. And then we went on to do a whole bunch more. So, so did the 10K feel momentous at all, or was it just another fascinating day at the office in the deep, deep sea? I don't know. People keep asking me stuff like this because I think I'm, I'm doing it for two different reasons. One, you know, part of me is thinking, right, this four-hour window we've got on the bottom, we have to make the most of this because 
the, the, the frustrating thing about the five boots was we could have done 25 dives in a row, but they just kept it down to one or two, three, whatever. So you've got to try and get the most out of it. And no one's really done this before, so you don't really know where to go. Someone's like, okay, you're the scientist, you tell me. Am I going forward, backwards, left, right? It's like, I actually don't really know. I think it's just about covering ground and absorbing it all. So you've got that sterile kind of, we need to get this right scientifically. But there's this little piece of you inside going, we're at 10,000 meters. <laughs> this is this is awesome. You know? yeah. and, uh, you're, try, you're trying to soak it in. But to be honest, I don't remember half of it. I think the, the adrenaline's all over the place. So when you, I think back on it, it's, time flies so quickly. And you know, we have these 15-minute calls you have to make to the surface. And yeah, it feels sometimes every... like only a minute, literally a minute yeah. has passed. And it's, no, no, that's the next 15-minute call. Like, oh. oh. I remember feeling very tickled that I was eating my tuna fish sandwich at 33,000 feet underwater. Like, oh, yeah, everybody does this. Yeah. But there, there are a couple of times we've done since, which, which I think mean more to me than the really deep ones. I mean, we did 10,000 meters in the Philippines as well last year. That wasn't especially good. That was that was basically the plastic bag dive. The whole, the whole site was just littered with plastic bags. Do you see something anthropogenic at the bottom of every one of the trenches you've been to? Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh. Just litter. Yeah. Like like physical, like not stuff you would see in the guts of an animal under a microscope. No, no, like no, full plastic bags, full on plastic bags. Yeah, we've chased plastic bags thinking they're jellyfish and they're not. They're just an eco-friendly plastic bag. At 33, 36,000 feet? Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. every dive. Every single dive, yeah. Uh, a lot, yeah. What's the most amazing critter you've seen that dazzles you the most? I love the Dumbo octopus at 7,000 meters. I love that one because... If you imagine, if you ask someone on the street, think of the deepest tentacled animal in the world. Their their imagination is going to just fill in this massive Jules Verne type of like, ah. Actually, it's about the size of a puppy and it looks lovely and it's got big ears and it's called Dumbo. And it's like the, the, the most hardcore, deepest ever tentacled animal on the planet. And it just looks like it wants to give you a cuddle. It does. They're amazing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, make, and it makes you feel like you're looking at a, at a puppy. What, what's yeah. the strangest thing you ever saw? What? So there's a, there's a couple of dives that spring to mind in terms of, I, I, I don't think it's the depth that really gets me. It's what you're looking at. So one strange one was in 2000, just before COVID really kicked off, the last one we did was the Red Sea. And Victor and I went down to a brine pool. And a brine pool is essentially, you get them in places like the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, where historically the entire sea has evaporated. But you can only evaporate the water. You can't evaporate the salt. So you end up with all the salt from the last ocean lying in pools at the bottom of what's now the new one. So they're like lakes. You can actually poke them. It's heavier than seawater, right? Yeah, it's really dense. It looks like a garden pond underwater. And you can, you can it ripples when you touch it. And it's just super, oh super dense. And there's lots of little vent systems around it. And the colors are just weird. And there's like a weird smoky haze over the brine pool. Like it's really kind of odd. And th that one was only 1,200 meters. That's the last, the, by, by a long way, the shallowest one I've ever done. But it was bizarre. It's just, you know, you're looking out and think, that, you know, we could be on Venus here. This is just, well, yeah. just geologically off the charts, as opposed to some of the deep sites, which don't have a lot of structure. But the weirdest one was last year, I took the ship and the sub on a charter off West Australia. And we did, I think, something like 10 dives to a fracture zone and an escarpment in the East Indian Ocean. And we came across a manganese nodule field, which is a is where everybody wants to deep sea mine, essentially. Manganese nodules are black balls, look like cannonballs, uh, and they take millions of years to form. And that's 
they're also full of cobalt, which is one reason why they need to they're wanting to be mined so we can make car batteries and all that sort of stuff. But normally when you get to the seafloor, it's a kind of brown, sandy, muddy landscape with stuff on the go. When you get to the manganese nodule fields, they only form between four and 6,000 metres. And there are literally billions and billions and billions and billions of cannonballs all lined up in a perfect formation across the seafloor. Wow. That is the weirdest thing. I mean, me and the pilot are like looking at each other going, you know what, this is, <laughs> I know we're both grown men here, but this is actually spooky. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it was just like, it looks like someone did it. It looks like an art installation. Right, and you, wow. it's six thousand meters deep, and you're like, "This is not real. This is just the weirdest thing." And it goes on for miles and miles and miles and miles. You know, tens of thousands of miles of black balls just lined up on the seafloor, perfectly round. I have to ask you one other thing that ties back to the space environment. You know, in the space arena, there's always this tension and debate, sometimes contentious, about sending astronauts versus just using robots, mm-hmm. and you know, there are those who will argue that telepresence, you know, the ability of you know bandwidth and visual systems to sort of let you feel like you're there where the rover is on Mars or you're right where the robot is. They're good enough now that nothing is lost in the experience if you just mm. send the robots. And, you know, since what you're after is understanding and data and information, much higher yield, much lower cost, much lower risk. I'm wired differently. To me, there's there's something important and meaningful about being there. I wouldn't want you to send me pictures of my child's wedding instead of being there, for example. I mean, it's it's that mm. kind of thing. But you've you've been to probably almost every deep, deep point on the planet, either sending a lander or diving. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? Do you feel like you've been to a trench if you air quotes only dropped a lander? Or is it different and and does it matter that you go it's a good question because it's something i wouldn't say struggling with but it's something that i haven't had to deal with until i got involved in the five deeps and pressure drop and so on because normally i would say use remote systems all the time i'd rather have an auv down there for one solid week mapping huge areas of seafloor than dive in a sub for four hours because the amount of data and understanding you get from four hours is nothing compared to an ROV that can stay down constantly for 48 hours. And I will hold my hands up and say, I went into the five deeps with the wrong attitude. I went in there because they asked me to be the scientist and I went in there with a scientific hat on. And when it became clear that a lot of, most of the diving was just going to be so I can say I'm the deepest guy, I didn't like that. I was thinking, what a waste. Why, 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 go, why go to all this effort to go to the bottom of a trench just so you can say I'm the deepest guy? As I say, why not go there 20 times and just record everything in the trench, right? So it's this battle between adventurism, exploration, and science, and they get mixed up a lot. So adventurism, you go down to the bottom, come back up again, say, I've experienced this, I have this, that's adventurism. Exploration is when you go there and you find out something new, or you've mapped it, or you've, you've, you've brought something back for everybody else. And science is when you actually understand and then can then predict various elements of this thing. And they get messed up. So after a while, I think what happened on Five Deeps was Victor got more into the science, and I started to realize that this, why can't we do adventurism? I mean, the scientific community, community are quite negative about the idea of science tourism. And then part of me is thinking, well, why not? Scientists are not police of the ocean. If, if my mum wants to see a hydrothermal event, why can't she go on a sub and go see a hydrothermal event? Because she wants to. Because I think if, you want, if, if society is going to develop a relationship with the deep sea, 
on a scale that is almost unimaginable, it it shouldn't be so elitist that to experience it, you only get to experience it if you're a scientist. Why can't anybody just go down and do it? So for, for, for me, there's, there's a little piece of me that thinks, I feel like I've gained a much greater experience or much greater understanding of these ecosystems by having been there. My issue is that I don't know how to translate that to somebody else, right? So if you told me, if you gave me a, a, a story about your daughter's wedding and you gave me it written down on a piece of paper, I don't think I still get the difference of what you're talking about because I it's it's yeah. a personal thing. Yeah. And it's the personal bit that then drops back down to the adventurism bit. It's like you've had a good time, you understand it better, but unless you can somehow project that to other people in an effective way, it's just it just remains something that you've done and you've enjoyed. And I, I let's say I don't feel guilty about that because I think it is my job to understand these things. So I feel like I'm, I'm a better place to to understand them, having done it. But I, I still don't know where that's going in my head. Yeah, it only scales one by the each from the inside out, right? I mean, you, you want to find yeah. a way to scale it more rapidly and share it in a way that has the same kind of connection that you feel by being there. But how do you do that except one by the each? Yeah, because I mean, one of the things that got me was when we did the Java trench dive, the first one I did. Historically, most of my career, the big moments of my career have been to do with the fish. I was the first person ever to film a fish at those depths. We found the deepest fish like seven times over and we named it and all the rest of it. And snailfish particularly are the little pink things that live in the bottom of trenches. They've been something very personal for me. I mean, I've missed the birth of one of my children because I was chasing these things off, you know, they, you know, I've, I've, it feels something quite close to me. But then sitting in the summary, and we're going up the slope in the in Java Trench, and we saw one, which was a new species. It's, it's, it, there's, there are no records of hadal snailfish from the entire Indian Ocean. And what got me was we were both going in the same direction. So I was wondering, well, where, where is this guy going on a Tuesday? Yeah, afternoon? I know where I'm going. Where are you going? <laughs> well, yeah, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get that from a camera because the camera, you're like, okay, we've got a snowfish here. So there's a Latin long and a depth of where these things exist. But when you're swimming alongside it, you're like, well, hello. Well, where are you going? Why? why what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's just, it's just a tiny little realization that that's what, that's what the difference is, is that you are now in that world rather than studying that world. But I think scuba divers know that. I mean, you can see pictures yeah. of sea turtles or whatever, but to be there with that creature and be near it and maybe swimming in formation with it, to me, th there's some sense of kinship that yeah, it awakens yeah. in me that I know really matters. It, and to, you've been touching this point the whole way along, this bias that makes us think and feel we're so separate from the sea, from the deep sea, there's no sense of intimacy. Yes, right? you, exactly. don't, you, you don't get to to smell and to touch and to feel this whole environment. And until you do that, it's easy to just write it off and go, well, "I don't really care. It's not. It's not my problem." I'm just... And yeah. that, that's the issue. The only way to the closest thing to to resolving that is to get people underwater. And I don't. I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of that. The only people who are allowed to go underwater are super wealthy people and scientists. You know, I think just put anybody underwater but then the issue is that the submersibles are always going to be mega expensive and that's something comes back to industrial design maybe it's just like let's try and think of a, a way of getting more submersibles out there that don't cost millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and try and build up that relationship that is just lacking because you know as i say most of the planet is deep sea and it's amazing how 
most people don't even know that. <laughs> yeah, they don't. It's, it's not even a case of don't care about that. It's, they yeah. wouldn't have even crossed their mind that when, when yeah. you see that big blue bit, most of that's 4,000 meters underwater. There's a lot said these days about the circular economy. It strikes me you're living the circular career path. It keeps coming back to design, to have, you know how to design things that let us get different places, do different things, bring more people along, share the experience. It's a very fun time yeah. you're living in. I think we're an interesting sort of crossroads. Well, for me anyway, is, is is to it'll be easy to just keep going down the scientific academic path of just going out, collecting data, writing it up, putting it in scientific literature. I think what's opened my eyes to this submersible crowd, I mean, there's, there's, there's also big things happening now in the next five years as well, is to try and blow apart all of that and start to look. I've just employed someone for a year to look more into the psychology of why we don't like deep sea or why we struggle with depth. I mean, the, the, the other one I, I, I use quite often was, you know, going back to the, the rainforest or, the, or, the, or, you know, you wouldn't only study the bottom 200 metres altitude and declare everything above 200 metres above sea level as being weird, is... The concept of scale and distance is something we struggle with. So if you imagine 11 kilometers is, is Challenger Deep, when you tell people Challenger Deep is 11 kilometers or 36,000 feet, people freak out. They go, oh my God, that's like so deep, it's unreal. You turn that on its side, turn it 90 degrees, it's only half the length of Manhattan. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. As a distance, it's not that it's not far that away. Much. Yeah. It's nothing. It's, you know, I, I probably drive more than 11 kilometers a day. Right? Yeah, a even huge realizing. number of people in North America commute multiple times that distance yeah. every so day. As, as the a distance day. from A to B, it is not scary Nothing. in the slightest. It's just because it goes to the bit, the part of the planet we're the most uncomfortable with. Yeah. And that's the difference. Alan, I've kept you a bit over intended time. This has just been, trust me, I have more questions. And what we need to do is find a time we actually can be together either you know, at a bar sharing a beverage or out at sea on the, the off hours and carry on sharing stories. I would love to have that happen sometime. Yeah. I would much prefer it happens because I get to Western Australia than that you come <laughs> to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> well, I just heard yesterday that WA West Australia are actually going to open their borders on March 3rd. Well, then. We just might For those have who don't know, West Australia is like the last bastion of no COVID in the world. So we're all under lockdown constantly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all that you've done for helping us understand the deep sea and bringing it to light and to life and for giving me so much of your time today. That's all right. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.